Oh no. It's the American Soccer Show. I'm your host, Emmett McConnell. Happy March Madness to all you chumps out there who picked Louisville to make it to the final in your bracket. In this episode, I talk week three in MLS, USA versus Ecuador, and to finish it off, I speak to Philadelphia Union Fafa Pico about his role in the new system and the hate mail he recently received on social media this week. On to week three headlines. First up, Seattle cruises in Chicago. Here it is, like I said, Seattle starting off red hot. They won't keep it up forever, but we're looking at a seriously strong team here. Given how they like to end seasons, they could fall off right here and still be a top three team in the West when all is said and done. When they have Victor Rodriguez, Nico Lodero, and Jordan Morris firing, that's a scary attacking line, not to mention Raul Ruiz Diaz leading the trio and opening up spaces. I wouldn't want to play Seattle anytime soon, that's for sure. They won 4-2 in Chicago this weekend. Uh, it was sort of to be expected given the fire had no real fullbacks. Seattle's winger had been on fire recently. Over to Columbus. No Burhalter, no problem. After perhaps a disappointing home draw to start the season versus the depleted Red Bulls team, Columbus is back to its hard knock ways with a 1-0 win over Dallas following last week's 2-0 win on the road against New England. It seems Caleb Porter has kept all the best things about Columbus. Meanwhile, Gaston Saro has been great in his return from injury. We'll see how long the set-piece magic can last, though, as the center back has two goals so far. The black and gold head to Philadelphia this week for a whole new challenge. Both teams will be missing quite a few players to international duty. Vancouver will be joining at the bottom with San Jose with three straight losses. This time Vancouver losing at Houston. Houston didn't make it easy, however, in this 3-2 win. It looks like Albert Elise has finally started finding his magic touch this season after a poor end to last year. Memo Rodriguez has been phenomenal, a, rele- a revelation on that left side, scoring two today and is now tied in the league league with three goals, and has even displaced Romel Kyoto on that left wing. Vancouver, on the other hand, have lost 3-2 twice now, once to Houston, once to Minnesota, and 1-0 at RSL, from perhaps a questionable penalty. There are plenty of reasons to be optimistic if you're a Vancouver fan, just stop conceding penalties. That's three in three games now. However, four goals in three games isn't phenomenal, but it's better than some other teams that are higher than them in the table. DC United high fives Real Salt Lake. Wayne Rooney registered his first MLS hat trick against one of the league's worst road teams. RSL did have two red cards in this match, which helped DC on their way, but it wasn't until after Wayne Rooney registered that hat trick. Paul Ariola is once again one of the best players in the pitch, joining Lucho Acosta as dazzling in the midfield. But it was Lucas Rodriguez who stole the show with a thunderous volley from outside the box. It was already 11 vs. 9 and 3-0 at that point, but it was a tremendous showing from DC United, who continue to show that they're potential favorites in Atlanta's absence. The LA Galaxy win without both of its stars. Like I mentioned in the previous episode, with Corona, the Galaxy are starting to look more well-rounded. They even had a fantastic passing sequence that led to the second goal that every fan of soccer should have a look at. It's soccer at its best. Minnesota, on the other hand, have hit its first roadblock. It's a really good result for the Galaxy given how United have played so far, 
and both teams are starting to look like potential playoff candidates. The question will be if they can keep it up longer down the road, and what happens when the adversity hits. For the Galaxy, losing both Ibrahimovic and Alessandrini, it appears Guillermo Barros-Scalotto has dealt with it quite well. On to Sunday. New York City FC and LAFC drew 2-2 on a horrendous Yankee Stadium pitch. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's the same as last week. It's a draw on a bad field for New York City FC. When you think of NYCFC's history, and where the fans of management expect them to be, these have been three poor results. Started with a draw in Orlando, then draws at home to division rival DC United and West Coast powerhouse LAFC. Yes, the last two are tough teams, but if NYCFC want to be contenders, those need to be wins. That home field advantage is slowly melting away, as is NYCFC's dominance in the East. LAFC play host to a diminished RSL team next week at home and will look to replicate DCU's big victory. Oh, and Jordan Harvey again at left back. Where's Eric when you need him? I do want to talk a bit more about LAFC. Carlos Vela getting a little bit of talk about MVP early on, and it's, well, it's fair to be, you know, it's fair talk. He was once again lights out in this game, did a little home run celebration, scoring his goal, and given the way that he's been, he's been, what, involved in every single goal so far, he's been tough to stop. And if LAC scores a goal, you better believe he's going to be on one end of it, either assisting or scoring. This is seriously a team to be afraid of right now. And they go into the weekend as well with a game given bye weeks for the international break. Uh, they will be without a few of their players because of it, but there's still reason to believe that this is one of the most dangerous teams. They face against, yes, as I mentioned, the RSL team. Uh, they will be without Christian Ramirez, but Adama Diomande, who's been stepping up as a substitute role, will most likely play starter in that match. Also on Sunday, Cincinnati win big in the opener. It's the first ever home match for FC Cincinnati in MLS at Nippert Stadium, and it's a big 3-0 win against a toothless Portland Timbers team. No Diego Chara, no party for them, it seems. It was an awesome turnout in the Queen City, and I can't wait for them to put out a soccer-specific stadium, personally. So far, we've seen Orlando and LAFC doing a terrific job creating a wonderful experience in those type of stadiums. I'm expecting Minnesota's will be as well when it opens in April. It's been a really good showing from all the newer expansion teams, in fact, even the ones without soccer-specific stadiums. Atlanta getting all the praise for their, even though they're playing in a football stadium, bringing out 50,000 every game. And NYCFC, despite the stadium, the fans have been getting into it and are never, you know, I guess it's not fair to say never, but they're pretty commonly at about 20,000 people, which is right where they need to be in MLS. With a nice stadium, I think NYCFC would also be in that conversation. Cincinnati, we talked about before, maybe not having the, the offensive power that some of the teams like Atlanta, even Minnesota have had, LAFC, but they do get 3 nothing here. Kendall Watson scores the first goal on a header, uh, and the addition of Kenny Safe seems to have been a quite a big improvement, and this team is starting to look like it's coming together. The, win, the draw in Atlanta was a big result, but, you know, we could find, you know, playing devil's advocate, Atlanta hasn't been looking great. No Digachara, no Portland Timbers team. They're winless in 22 games, now 23 without him. So there's a little caveats in these, but there's reason to be optimistic for Cincinnati fans. And, I mean, just, just the turnout alone. As long as they keep doing that, 
Cincinnati will be an MLS favorite. Speaking of Atlanta, the Union went down to Georgia and continued Atlanta United's woes with a 1-1 draw. First points of the season for the U, and that's now two draws in a row at home against what you'd consider lower table sides for ATL. The Union didn't come out exactly like last year and try to press the issue, which to be fair saw them get two red cards, instead try to take the game to Atlanta. But instead, of play, instead they played compact and pressed only when appropriate. When they gained possession, they usually played long direct passes, usually only requiring one or two to get into the goal. Fafa Pico and Corey Burke played quite well getting forward, but it was teenage sensation Brendan Aronson who stole the show. He scored the Union's only goal off a deflection in his debut. On the other side of the field, Ezekiel Barco, the most unlikely of candidates, won a header in the box to tie it up. For neither team, I think this comes off as a great result. The Union now with only one point in three games. It's not much better than losing all three, to be honest. Atlanta now it's two draws in two games they probably should have won, where they were dominant in possession. Against Cincinnati, maybe they had a lot more chances in this one. It was the Joseph Martinez attempt off the crossbar, and that Barco goal was really the only threats they had at the Union goal. That said, now that they're out of CONCACAF Champions League, maybe we'll see Atlanta start to turn things around and come back to their ways. We did see Toronto struggle with that last year. There was some fluky injuries that kept them back, but Atlanta's going to start need figuring things out. And like I said in the beginning of the year, Frank DeBoer hasn't convinced me that he's a top-level coach, given what he's did in Crystal Palace and Inter Milan. Perhaps it's another case of needing a long time to instill his plans, but things are not looking great in Atlanta. Union as well, growing pains. The 4-4-2 with a diamond midfield has not looked perfect yet, but it's shown versatility. Against Toronto, they pushed the issue, had over 500 passes. This time in Atlanta, only 267. That's quite a difference. That's about half as many passes. So we're seeing the Union, a team that used to want to go on the road and play like the home team, play possession and attack with the ball. Now it seems that they've been able to find some versatility. Against Kansas City, the red card kind of changed things for them. But here in Atlanta, all of their chances, if you go back and look at the highlights, they win the ball in the midfield, sitting in that middle block. The ball comes to Harris Madunian or Brendan Aronson, and it's usually a simple forward pass between the lines to try to get Corey Burke or Fafa Pico in on goal. It was an interesting game to show Union's tactical changes since the past, but in the end, neither team really ends up happy. Josie Altidore rises again to down the revs in a 3-2 win. The big man gets a late goal to hoist Toronto 3-2 over New England. Now, I don't think New England specifically is another team that needs to panic. They have just one draw in their first three games, lost at home to Columbus, and now here in Toronto. They did get their draw on the road to Dallas, so that's not terrible, but now they're in the same position as the Union and only slightly better than San Jose and Vancouver. I think San Jose is the only team here that is really needs to worry. They lost 4-1 on the road to the Red Bulls, scored the first goal there, and then continued to collapse. It seems that this year we are seeing perhaps the most parity in MLS in a long time. The teams we expected to be dominant have not really been so. DC, yes, has been pretty strong. The Red Bulls have been strong. Seattle LAFC, perhaps we'll see some separation later on. But the lower teams have looked 
also impressive. Minnesota has stepped up and proven themselves able to win on the road, something they couldn't do last year. RSL, if they do the same thing, is a potential top four team in the West. So for, I think for the first time, we're seeing lesser teams coming out of the fold. Portland in a similar position, just one draw. Chicago, just one draw. For most of these teams, given their history, they're going to be worried. But I think that they shouldn't get too ahead of themselves. And we should look big picture here. Fans are going to be calling for coaches' heads, saying things need to start changing. But it's too early for that. It's just the first international break of the year, three games in. Which brings us to the U.S. men's national team. I'm not going to go into this too much as in the past. Because uh, it wasn't really what I expected. The defense and organization was great, but it looked very much like an ordinary 4-3-3 this time from Greg Berhalter. I would guess he didn't get the time to give his plans to the European guys who were on the field. Tim Ream, John Brooks, uh, Adams, Pulisic, and McKinney. I think he wanted something that could pick up a little bit quicker. He wanted things to go maybe a little bit more traditional. Adams did tuck in and play a little bit like a defensive man at times. But for the most part, he seemed like a, a out-and-out fullback. While Ream, he seemed to pick it up a little bit quicker, but was, let's be fair, not great in this game. Uh, the U.S. did get one one goal in this, the winner from Giassi Zardes. It took a massive deflection, uh, and in all honesty, it was a bit of a fluky goal. But you'd have, to, you'd have to say the USA were the better team in Ecuador, as they only faced, what, one shot on target in the entire game? So I don't think we should expect this type of performance from the U.S. moving forward. I think in this international break on Tuesday, we'll probably see something similar. Because once again, Berhalter probably won't have the time to get his entire plans across to these guys. But I think we're going to start seeing something move closer to some sort of 3-2-4-1-ish as we move on. But I don't think it'll be until the summer until we see what the January camp showed us with that formation. Where Berhalter really gets a chance to instill this plan on his guys. On to the last part of the show, the interview segment this week. I got the chance to speak with Union forward Fafa Pico. The winger turned forward has looked dangerous so far for the U, but has yet to bag his first goal of the year. His pace of reading of the game have led him to getting good runs behind the defense, where he saw two great plays that almost led to goals against Atlanta. Recently, he has had to deal with some disgusting hate mail from Instagram. He, po- he made a post about it, believing it was well over the line. Now, this is a reality that a lot of professional athletes have to face that maybe some fans are unaware of. And unfortunately, Pico received something so bad that he decided it was time to come forward with it. Personally, I hope the union makes some strides to find out who the perpetrator is and find a punish him in some way, maybe a stadium ban, because there really isn't any place for it in this world. Don't care if you're doing it to athletes or anyone. Hate like that is always uncalled for. So here's my conversation with Union forward Fafa Pico. So this season, new system, playing as like a second forward. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling in this system? What are your kind of instructions? What's Talk me through uh, your role this year compared to last year. Uh, it's okay. It's a lot of work. Um, you have to get used to not having as much width. So um, I'm trying to create width at the same time, stay central. So it's, um, it's a new task, but... Um, the year is long, so there's time to, to adjust and get used to it, but um, it's coming along. Do you have the freedom to drift wide to either side, uh, or do they you know, mostly stay central, depending on the, depending on the game? Um, yeah, it's uh, a bit of both. So uh, 
like I said, I'm trying to create both the width and also get central. I'm used to carrying the ball off the side and creating space for myself dribbling inside or going outside and having that freedom, but it's a bit different now to where I'm getting the ball um, mostly in the depth and longer uh, parts of the field. So um, it is an adaptation, but like I said, it's coming along. Uh, do you prefer playing on the wing versus playing on up top, or does it not matter much to you? Um, for me, it's uh, I mean whatever works. Honestly, uh, every game is going to be different. So some games you would maybe prefer to get more with, but um, some games it's good to be central. So I guess uh, throughout the year we'll see how it goes and just keep uh, keep working at it. So about the Atlanta game, you seemed like you were trying to stay a little bit more centrally mm -hmm. and get between the the four, get between the the defenders. What was what were the instructions for that game? What were you looking for mostly? Uh, just to split them. Uh, just to split them. Use especially playing away. They're a team that's going to possess the ball, so if you can get chances uh, into space or uh, diagonal runs behind their center backs, yeah, it creates an opportunity for us to get onto goal. So. You um, playing with a second striker? Walk me through what that's like. Are you? Mostly trying to stay next. It's been Corey so far. Are you mostly trying to stay close to him, work off of him. Or are you guys making separating runs, getting pulling the defenses apart? Uh, you want to stay close enough, but um, also create some kind of depth to try to run off of each other. Depending on who's jumping for the ball, who's checking to the ball, who's making the the off run. Um, I think a good couple of the model is um, is the way Baca and I think Falcao work together in the Colombian national team. The way they moved off each other's. It's very impressive, and it's important to start to build that chemistry. Like I said, it's early in the year, so it takes, uh, it takes a little time so before preseason. So um, it's just going to take some uh, some work and keep getting used to it. It's, uh, it's a lot of running in this new system, pressing a lot. Does it yeah. wear down you by the end of the game? Um, at times. At times, it's normal, so you have to calculate when to make your runs. Um, if not, you're burnout. It doesn't matter how much how much in shape you are, yeah. extremely in shape, and it's still tiring. But... Um, at the end, it also wears down defenses, so uh, you have to calculate when and try to tire them down and towards the end of the game, create something and get something out of it. So you've had that recent uh, post from social media. Mm -hmm. Do things like that happen often? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been, I left my home 12 years ago, 16, and since then, uh, between racist abuse, racial abuse, um, family threats, um, whatever it is, I've, I've heard it all. Um, this one was just a bit extra. And at bad timing, you know, you don't know what yeah. somebody or a player is going through in their personal life, and to write something that's stupid, I won't tolerate it. And I don't think yeah. any athletes have to tolerate it anymore. Um, social media um, is an opportunity for for fans to interact with players and players as well with fans, um, as well as players with other players. So um, it's a it's a platform uh, of positivity. Obviously, you can make your you could critique um, and make your comments on players based on whatever you want. I really don't care. But uh, once it gets personal and uh, you start to attack someone's family, that's, that's crossing the line. And, and I don't think anybody has to deal with that anymore. And I'm seeing it in the NBA. I'm seeing it in soccer. And it's, uh, it's, it's getting out of hand, and it just needs to be called out more often. Uh, is this something that uh, you, you and your teammates talk about? Do you guys kind of go into these messages, or do you mostly just ignore them? Um, for the most part, honestly, in that case, I was just looking through my private messages, uh, the unreads, um, looking for a friend that sent me a message, and I couldn't find his message, and I came across one that said, your parents, and I opened it, thinking it was somebody maybe from back home, and, and it was that message, so um, what I thought was going to be a, a decent message from somebody that I hadn't seen in a long time, ended up being a hate message, 
Um, and yeah, we, we look at each other, so we, we share um, when we get these kind of messages. We try not to pay it any mind or any attention, but uh, I felt like this one needed to be exposed right. because it was, it was just uh, way, way past the limit. Of course. Um, do you feel that there's enough positive messages on social media to make it a, a good uh, fan interaction? You get a lot of uh, definitely fans. after after posting it, I got I want to say over 600 personal messages from fans, and um, although I didn't get to respond to all of them, and you know obviously it's a lot, so, um, but I was thankful. Um, it was kind of them, and obviously you have your family support. My parents don't even know about the message to be honest, and it's not something I want to share with them. But uh, it's just to know that. You know, you do have positive support. You have your teammates. You have your your family back home. But uh, we won't tolerate that. Not the way I grew up. We, we don't deal with that. I'm sorry I had to deal with that. And thanks for talking with me. Yeah, no doubt. Have Good luck day. this weekend. Thank you. I would like to take the time to thank the Philadelphia Union for allowing me to talk to Kai Wagner and Fafa Pico these past two weeks. And thank Fafa, especially Fafa Pico and Kai Wagner for taking the time to speak with me. Anyway, that's all the time we have this week on the American Soccer Show. Don't forget to subscribe and download. Leave us a rating on iTunes. Let us know. You know, I keep saying this because this is how it's always been, but it's it's just me now. Let me know how I'm doing. Tell me how I can prove what you want to hear. And if you have any uh, interest in a player you'd like me to speak to in the future, you can send me a message on Twitter or email. I'm not giving you my email address. What, who are we kidding? Send me a Twitter. <laughs> send me a, a direct message on Twitter. Uh, and I'll see what I can do. Anyway, that is me, your host, Emmett McConnell, signing off.